we continue uh, the message today, Walking on the Water. I doubt there's anybody in our congregation that has not felt at some time or another that you're facing an impossible situation. Uh, In these times of a slow and failing economy, uh, often that is distilled into the financial pressures that people face. Uh, There's hopelessness with a lot of people about how are we going to meet the bills, how are we going to pay our rent, how are we going to have enough food to eat, and how are we going to pay for the utilities. And I I certainly don't want to make light of those kinds of problems because those pressures are real and they can actually become very depressing to people. Financial problems are one of the issues that we face today, but there are also people that have problems with families. There is sickness in our families. There's problem with teenagers and all different kinds of things that we go through today. And worse than that, you might even face a combination of all of those things. You're sick. You don't have enough money to buy medicine. Some people are forced to make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to buy medicine for my child or am I going to buy food to feed him? In one of our mission reports this past month, that dilemma was expressed as an everyday occurrence on the mission field. When you get out of, outside of the United States and to many of the third world countries, what I've just talked to you about is not an occasional problem. It's an ongoing thing. Every day that people wake up, they were, they're faced with these issues, enough food to eat, enough money to pay bills, enough uh, uh, the resources that we need to do everything that needs to be done. And we think about people on the mission field And we wonder, when they come to Christ as the Savior, and they're facing all those problems as an everyday thing, is there really hope for them? Uh, Can they really be joyful in the circumstance that they're in? Can there be joy in a Christian's life if he has so many problems that he faces? Well, the problem really sort of struck home to me in in a few days before I was preparing for this message. There are two people that stuck in my mind as, as I thought about this sermon. One of the standard remarks that I say to people when they, when they leave, and you've all heard me say it, I'll shake your hand, and as you're leaving, I'll say, God bless you. And there's someone that always comes to my mind about this because whenever he goes out the door, I say, God bless you, and he says he already has, and that's Jack Campbell. And we know Jack has faced a lot of hard circumstances with his health. Not long ago, he lost his beloved wife, Frances, Then there was another person that went out the door on the same day, and he won't mind me saying this because I think that he was caught in a a moment of a careless thought. And I said, God bless you. And he said, I wish that he would. And I would say that's more of a careless thought because we all know as Christians that every day that we live is a tribute to the mercy, the grace, and the love of our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every breath that we breathe is a blessing from God. Well, this message is uh, part two of a story of those who walked on water. And that seems like an impossible situation to walk on water. You may say, well, is that possible? Can you do it? And if you, if you say yes, or, or if you say no, you can't do it, or if you say yes, it's impossible, you have answered the question wrongly because it is actually possible to walk on water. And this, is, this scripture is an example of how the toughest times can be handled and how the deepest fears that we have can be calmed. 
And that happens when you keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, I'd like you to look then at Matthew chapter 14, if you'd stand with me once again for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse number 22. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, you'd open up our hearts today to the message that you'd have us to hear. May we find something here that will bless our, our hearts today in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to briefly remind you of last week's material so that we can sort of get into the flow of today's message. The incident that we're reading about here happened just after Jesus had fed the 5,000. As we talked about last week, that that miracle was actually more likely a feeding of 10,000, 15,000, perhaps even 20,000 people when you consider the women and the children that were there on that day. And when that miracle was over... Uh, it had such a huge impact on the crowds that they began to think that this truly could be the Messiah, that Jesus really is the one who was promised to come. And so they thought that the best thing that we can do is to take Jesus and just as soon as possible make him our king. Well, Jesus was aware that a grassroots movement to make him a king at this time would be disastrous to the to the plans of the Heavenly Father, the purposes of the Father in the redemption of his people. And so what Jesus did was to send the crowds away, and he told his disciples to get into a boat and to head back across the sea to the area around Capernaum, and that was, of course, the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus had a twofold purpose in sending those disciples away. The first thing is he wanted to remove them from the crowds unless in their misunderstanding of his mission and what God had called him to do that they did not join in with that crowd and also try to make him a king. And then he also sent them away because what he was about to do was to give them a demonstration of his deity. And he wanted to show them how they must depend on him always, especially when times were so tough that they simply couldn't see the way out. And so this sending away of the disciples into this boat on a storm-tossed sea becomes a training exercise so that they would learn how to face impossible situations. 
But there would be many of those times that would come when they were in their own personal ministries after he had left the world. So one thing that they could surely count on was this, and this was number one in your outline last week, and that is the power of Jesus' presence. That no matter where they were, that Jesus would be with them whenever he seemed to be far, far away. And in this case, Jesus was far away. He was away on the mountain. They were in the middle of the storm. They feared for their lives. And yet, Jesus always had his eye on them. As the psalmist said, and God says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. And so the disciples had this promise that Jesus would not let them go into a storm that he did not control. And I believe that he actually sent this storm in order to teach them a lesson. As I said, it's a training exercise. Well, there are many important statements that were made in the, in the last message, and we can't cover all those today. So we need to move on today to the second part of this, and that is that fear can be turned into faith. I don't know if you've ever faced a life-threatening situation. I know some of you have been in the military and you've served in a time of war, and perhaps you faced a time like this, that you're just in a time when you fear for your life. I've never been in the military, but there are at least three times when I think back on my own life uh, of times when I felt like I uh, I was threatened, when my life was threatened. Two of those times was when I was just fresh out of school and I'd taken a job as a loan officer. Now, back in those days, a loan officer not only made loans, but he also had to collect them. And so part of your job was to go out to people that weren't paying their loan payments and you were to go find them and try to collect the money from them. If they're trying to dodge a loan payment, then you had to go find them. Well, I was, uh, of course, I'm from Kentucky, And as Brother Jim over here said this morning in Sunday school class, people from Kentucky are kind of wild. And uh, I'm not going to do anything in this story or these two stories I want to tell you to begin with that'll that'll dispel that notion any. So I uh, I was in the hills of Kentucky, one in the right in the in the Appalachian country there, and and I tracked down this farmer who was working in his field who wasn't making the payments on his loan, and he was in a pasture between two mountains that's closed off at one end. Now, in Kentucky, that's what you call a holler. That's a holler. So this man was in his uh, tobacco patch working in that field, and I parked my car out on the road and had to walk quite a distance to get there, but I spotted him over in the field, and he was working there with his tractor in the field. And so I walked over to him, and as I was coming across the field in my suit, he was thinking, there's nobody but a fool who's going to come into my tobacco patch down here and confront me about anything. So I walked up to him, and I introduced myself, and he didn't say anything. He just reached behind his tractor, and he pulled out a hammer. And he said, you see this? Head back across the field, or I'm going to hit you in the head with this. And he didn't have to ask me twice. I I was... 22 years old, and I felt I had a lot of living left to do, and so I had no problem going back across the field. The second time was uh, similar, only this time I accidentally caught a man at home when he wasn't supposed to be there. This was also in a, in a rural area in a hilly country of Kentucky, and this man said to me when I caught him there, he said, I once killed a man, and I don't want to have to do it to you. 
And when he said that, that was a true statement because what had happened was one day he had an argument with someone in front of his house, and there in the middle of the road, he killed that man. That's what you call Kentucky Mountain Justice. And uh, he actually got away with murder. So he didn't have to ask me twice either. I left his house, and I filed that loan in drawer number 13, and I never went back. But I want to tell you about the third incident because this is one that really has more of an application for today's message. And this was when I was involved in a, in a head-on collision. This is one of those that you see coming, and you know that it's impossible to avoid it. And so I had maybe three, four, at most five seconds before this was about to happen. And before that crash, I prayed a Peter-like prayer. It was quick and to the point. Peter said, Lord, save me. Only my prayer was this, Lord, here I come. And so we had the accident head-on collision, I I went into the windshield and was knocked out. And when I woke up, I wasn't sure if I was in heaven and the paramedics were angels. I wasn't sure. But in that moment, this is one thing that I thought about, or or in the moments prior to that, I should say, the thing that I thought about in in just those few seconds, I thought about, where is my faith? In whom do I trust? And I was confident that no matter whether dead or alive, that I was safe. Now, let's take a look at what the disciples were going through. And we can frame this to begin with with this question, how deep is the darkness? This is actually your point of contact with this story. How deep is the problem that you're going through? How dark is the night for you? Now, the disciples in their minds were really, truly struggling and facing death in the, uh, they were looking death in the face. The sea was boiling. The ship was being tossed by the waves. And the word tossed there that we find in the Scripture is actually translated in other places as tortured, that they were tortured for their lives, meaning they thought the situation was hopeless. And no doubt they knew many people that had been out on the Sea of Galilee and caught in storms, and those people never came back. And the sea was bad enough just to be out there in the middle of it with the waves and the, and the storm that was there. But the darkness, that even made it worse. They couldn't see out. They couldn't see where they were going. They were troubled by this. And there really was no solution as far as they were concerned. Now, we look at what happened in the pitch black darkness. In verse number 25, it says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And I'm kind of like my dad on that issue when I, when I was growing up. He would always say, nothing good happens after midnight. And you might want to remember that. Stay in, get in, get home before midnight. Nothing ever good happens after midnight. And so at the first sight of Jesus, just, just the fact that he was out there actually made it worse because verse number 26 tells us they were troubled at the sight of him. That means they were panicked about it. They thought that they had seen a ghost, some kind of an apparition, or even this, that this was a demon, some sort of demon that had been sent to torture them even more. So as far as they were concerned, this was as bad as it could be. It never entered into their minds that this could be Jesus. They'd left him. Jesus was up on the mountain. He he was nowhere around. And as many times as they'd been across the sea with him when he was in the boat... They'd never seen him get out of the boat and walk on the water. So everything up to this point keeps pointing 
or adding up to the impossible. Impossible to escape, impossible to be saved, impossible to get to the shore, a problem that's impossible to solve. But Jesus came walking on the water to solve the impossible. See, it doesn't matter how dark the night is. It doesn't really matter how bad that things become. There is comfort in knowing this, that Jesus will always arrive at just the right time. The key to it all is having confidence in him. He arrives, and as he does, you notice in this story that the wind doesn't throw him off balance. The waves don't cause him to stumble. The darkness doesn't cause him that he can't see. The foundation of troubled waters doesn't keep him from standing or cause him to sink. He's unfazed by all of that. He is in control of all of it because he's the one that turns the storm on and he's the one that can turn it off. So we notice then as he gets closer and these disciples were in their worst moment of fear that he spoke to them and they recognized his voice. And Jesus said, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now, last week in our lesson, I said, we're going, to learn, uh, we're going to learn lessons, different lessons from this story, and some sub-lessons as well. And here is a lesson for us to learn and another question to ask. How good is God? When, this is when you, as one of God's children, you need to think back on this and say, when did God ever let me down? I asked you a few minutes ago if you've ever been in a life or death situation. And you may think right now, well, I'm there. And I, and I ask you what that problem is. Have you, ever, have you ever been troubled? I asked that a moment ago. If you've never been troubled about anything, then this message is not for you. File it away. Use it at a later time, because if you haven't had trouble, trust me, you will. So I ask, have, have you ever been troubled? Has anything ever bothered you like this? Finances, sickness, family issues, And for a Christian, you need to ask this question when you're going through those things because you know it's happened in the past too, hasn't it? And you have to ask the question, how am I here now? How did I get through the last problem that I thought was impossible to be solved? And you have to ask, did I have a meal yesterday? Did I have a place to sleep last night? Do I have clothes to put on? And I can promise you that at some point in your despair, You met Jesus. The Holy Spirit came to you with an answer. And you keep coming back, and you're in church today because it's always happened to you this way that your fears, the very worst things that go on in your life as a Christian, that fear is turned into faith. You are God's child, and you know that God is too good to let you down. Well, Peter thought that he would test the Lord on this, and it really wasn't a bad test because it helped him to learn a lesson that God wouldn't let him down. So Jesus walked on the water to meet the disciples at their deepest need. And Peter saw him, and he heard when Jesus spoke to them. And he said, Lord, if it's you, if it be thou, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Is it impossible to walk on water? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Most of the time when... This passage is explained that people will look at what happened here and they'll say, well, this is Peter's little bit of faith. There's really not much faith involved here. Well, let me ask you, have you ever walked on water? Have you ever done that? You know, it's, it's, it's the first step that counts, isn't it? Have you ever walked on water? Have you ever come to the edge of a pool 
and just stepped out there and you were able to stand up? I would say that if you are able to stand up for even a tenth of a second, did that take a great amount of faith to do that? The Scripture says here, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. And people say, oh, but it was just a short distance. Really wasn't very far. Peter didn't walk too far on the water. He walked on water, folks. He actually took steps and walked on the water. So you criticize Peter for his little bit of faith when you have the ability to take even one step on water. So this is really an example, or becomes an example to us of what can be done by faith. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he got out of the boat, and he walked on water. He did what all of us considered to be impossible. And that is a vibrant testimony of what happens when fear is turned into faith. Jesus said, come, and when he says come, he'll make sure that you have the ability to come. Well, we all know there's a problem, though, in the story, don't we? Yes, Peter did get out of the boat and he walked on the water, but there's a problem here, which leads us into another great lesson of the story. The third question that needs to be asked is, when does faith falter? But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now, I have no problems with... Jesus questioning faith. I have no problems when he says little faith. I have a big problem trying to criticize Peter myself. But it's a simple lesson that's learned here. Faith falters when you take your eyes off of Jesus. As long as Peter was looking at Jesus, he was all right. But when he returned to looking at the sea, and when he focused back on the problem, when he took a second look at what was all around him, when he focused on that instead of the one who solves the problems, that's when Peter began to sink. And you think about that for a moment. When is your problem actually solved? Sometimes God will take a problem and he'll remove it completely away from you. It's just gone. It's not there any longer. But when is a problem really solved? Well, I think a problem is solved when it no longer bothers you. A problem is solved that you, when you can face it and it doesn't overwhelm you and you're not caught in the place where you are depressed and you're pushed down and you think there is no way out and you just give up. The problem is solved when it no longer has an effect on you and when you're able to handle it, it's when you have peace in the problem. That's when the problem's really solved because that's the part that you were really looking for. If you have peace in the problem, then it doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter how you're going to get out of it. If you have peace in it, that's what you're looking for because it doesn't bother you any longer. The Apostle Paul was someone who had great problems. You read 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12 and read there about all the problems that Paul went through. He went through problems every day. They were continuous with him all of the time. And yet he had peace to get through problems. There in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul, or Christ appeared to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you. God spoke to him and said, I have enough grace for you to get through all of this. And this is what happens when your problems become bigger in life than life. When you become overwhelmed with them, that's when you take your eyes off Jesus and you're actually focusing on the problem. So faith falters when you don't look to Jesus, the one who is the source of your faith. And so if you stop going to that well of faith and the promises that God provides and you stop going to that reservoir, that storehouse of faith that God has given, then don't be surprised when you run dry. 
Don't be surprised when you feel like you're dying in that desert heat of a problem. Or to bring it back to the metaphor that's used here, that you're sinking in a sea of despair. Don't be surprised if you don't go to the storehouse of God's faith. Now, others will tell you that what you need to do is you need to look inside. You, you need to pull yourself up. And that's the gospel that's preached today. You can do it. You just have faith in yourself. You're strong enough. You're smart enough. You're able to do this. You can just pull yourself up from the depths of the humanity, that that spirit that's in you, and you can survive your problems if you just have enough confidence. And there are whole sections of Christian bookstores that are dedicated to that philosophy. But that is against the Word of God. That's not biblical. Paul, or Peter rather, he had no ability, no ability. He could not say to himself, now Peter, you can do this. I know that you can walk on water. Just concentrate here, step out, have the confidence that you can do it. No, the only reason that Peter got out of the boat because it was the command of Jesus. And he began to sink when he was under the confidence of self. And here it's helpful for us to explain just a little bit about what saving faith is. Peter said, Lord, save me. Saving faith is when you commit yourself to Jesus. I know some of you have been taught that saving faith is when you believe in Christ as Savior, and then the commitment can come later. Well, you might need to ask Peter about that. If he didn't have all the confidence in Jesus and was completely committed to him, he would have sunk to the bottom of that sea in a split second. After all, you can't walk on water, can you? Or what Peter would have done after climbing out of the boat and beginning to sink, he would have struggled. He would have tried very hard to swim and get back to the boat. But he didn't. He trusted Jesus. He committed himself to him, to Jesus' ability rather than the boat. Now, you have to think about that, too. Here is Peter in the water, and the closest place to get out of the problem, it appears, is to go back to the boat. That's the thing that he can see. What he's never had before is someone standing on water who promises to lift him up and hold him up. He'd never seen that before, never experienced it before. And isn't that exactly what the Word of God says that faith is? One of the definitions that we have of faith, Hebrews 11:1. 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is great when you don't have to see, when you can just trust Jesus because he says that he will do it. So saving faith is demonstrated by Peter's actions and then failing faith. That was also demonstrated as well. Now, thirdly, though, we need to come to the most important lesson taught in this story. Jesus commanded the disciples to get into the boat, and then he stirred up the storm, and he sent them out for hours struggling and with fear, thinking they were going to drown, to teach them this all-important spiritual lesson. And here is the most important thing that we get out of this story today, and that is the wisdom of in worshiping Christ, the wisdom of worshiping Jesus Christ. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshiped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. The conclusion of this matter is that for sure, for the very first time, they recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. 
Did you know that this is the first time, we're 14 chapters into Matthew, almost to the 15th, and this is the first time that the disciples recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. The first time that they called him this. When they were out on the sea on the storm in chapter 8, Jesus was with them, but you remember he was asleep, so they woke him up, and they were afraid, and they said, Lord, save us, we perish. And Jesus got up, and he rebuked the winds, and he calmed the sea. And the disciples said, What manner of man is this, that the winds and the sea obey him? They did not say, Truly, you are the Son of God. They crisscrossed Galilee with him many times, watching him heal people, commanding demons to do his will, raising people from the dead. They had just seen him feed 5,000 people, or the 25,000 perhaps, with two small sardines and five crackers. And when that was over, they did not say, Truly you are the Son of God. So here we have a miracle that brings them to the point that they will say it and believe it. Now, their faith wasn't perfect yet. They were still a little thick-headed at times. But this is when it finally started to sink into them. Now, faith has to go deeper yet. They have a lot more lessons to learn. But here, for the first time, you might put it this way, the round peg was starting to fit in the right hole. They were starting to understand who Jesus was. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 27 that must have prompted Peter's faith for him to climb out of the boat. It says, But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now, those words tell us that Jesus is actually worthy of worship. He says, Be of good cheer. Now, those are comforting words, but we wonder, how are they going to be cheerful in the midst of a storm? How could they not be afraid? And the answer is actually in the second part of that, it is I. And the literal interpretation of that is, be of good cheer, I am. Is that familiar to you? Have you heard that before in Scripture? This is the same thing that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses asked, what shall I say, or who shall I say sent me? What is your name, God? And God spoke from that, bush and he said I am he said you go and tell the people that I am has sent you and did you know that that is the name of our God I am that is the name of our God it's actually a translation of what we call the tetragrammaton in Hebrew it's four letters Y-H-W-H assumed to be pronounced Yahweh it's the same as when we say Jehovah And when Jesus said, I am, he meant, I am the God that exists. Revelation calls him the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He's the one which is, which was, and which is to come. Essentially, the line that we sang a few minutes ago, and blessed be the name of the Lord God Almighty. And so Jesus tells them, I am God. Colossians says about Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So this one who is out walking on the sea is none other than the God of the Old Testament. 
The psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Jonah said, when he was in the belly of the whale, he said, I am a Hebrew, or this was just before that, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which what? Which made the sea and the dry land. And so when Jesus says, I am to the disciples, he's letting them know, I am the one who made the sea. And in that statement, he told the disciples, I am the one who brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And listen, I am the one who led them through the Red Sea. He's saying, where God is, I am. Now, Peter was a Hebrew. He, he understood, I am. And he crawled out of that boat, and he stepped on the water and began to walk towards Jesus, who is the great I am. And the result of all of this is this statement, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, there's some who look at the statement, and they say, oh, yes, well, he is the Son of God, but he's not really the God. And they don't understand what that statement means because that is not a term that means that he submits to God or the Father simply as a son would do, but it's actually the Hebrew way of saying that he is the same being, that he is the same essence of God. How do we know that? Well, we look at the reaction of the religious leaders, the Jews, when Jesus talked about his Father, when he talked about what he would do. So how, how did they interpret what Jesus said? Well, the answer is in John chapter 10. First in verses 30 through 33, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, listen, but for blasphemy, and because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They were very much aware of what his statements meant. He was claiming that he was one with the Father, means that he is actually God. Then in verse 36, Jesus said, Say ye of him whom the Father have sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said what? I am the Son of God. So they recognized that as a term that meant that he is Almighty God himself. And so you can see this, that Jesus says, I am God. When he says he's the Son of God, it means I, the same as I am God. That's the way the Jews interpreted it. And that's why the disciples said, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. They saw what happened. And you know what the next logical step is when they recognize this? They worshipped him. What do you do when you come into the presence of the great I am? You worship him. You can't come into God's presence without worshiping him. God said to Moses, take off your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. And if you are a Christian, you need to remember this, that wherever you are is holy ground. You know why? Because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every place that you walk is God's holy ground. And so you need to be very careful about what you're doing on God's holy ground. Worship Jesus because he's the one that's worthy to be worshipped. You can turn all your troubles over to him because he controls it all. He's God. So there's no problem that he can't replace with peace and this security of nothing can harm you because you belong to him. 
Well, that leads us to a last thought. Let me read from John chapter 6 where we find the same story. Uh, This is after Jesus said, It is I, be not afraid, or I am, be not afraid. John 6, 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whether they went, whither they went. Now, this is a really good thing for all of us to remember at all times that as a child of God, you are always headed towards home. You are always headed towards home. And when Jesus was back on the mountain praying, he knew where the disciples would be. He knew what would happen when they learned the lesson that he was God. He knew why he put them out on the sea in the first place. He knew what their final destination was. They would not fail to reach their destination. And so this is one thing that we surely learn about this storm, is there was no chance of drowning. Drowning is not an option in this story. There was only one way that they could fail to reach where they were going, and that is if Christ himself fails. The only way they fail is if Jesus fails. And so you think about that. What is it that you face? Stormy sea, strong wind, a dark night. Sometimes we face those things and we have no idea how it's going to end. As the choir sang in their song, we just have to bow the knee to the Lord because we don't know, we don't understand all the purposes of God's plan. But we do know this, that final victory is assured. We do know that he says you're going to get through this and you have to look in the bigger picture of all the problems that happen in your lives and and, and that is that God has not saved you for three score and ten. Seventy years or whatever it might be is not the extent of your life when you know Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that you have eternal life, and it's right now in your possession. You're sure for it. If you're a child of God, the deepest and the stormiest, the darkest of nights, without fail, end this way. And we have it in the book of Revelation. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe all tears away from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Continuing in chapter 22, it says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They have no need of a candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You see, folks, they worship Jesus because he's worthy to be worshipped. This is how your dark night ends. This is how your financial problems end. This is how all the sorrows that you go through end. There's no night when Jesus is present. That's because you're always headed home. Now, let me caution you, though, about this important point. What I've said today is for believers... These are promises that are for people that know that they don't control their own lives, for people who have given up control to Jesus so that when he says, come, when he says, walk on the water, they obey him. They listen to what he says, and because of their faith in him, he holds them up. 
Now, the sad part about the whole story today is if you don't know Jesus, there's nothing here for you. There's nothing in the promises for you if you don't know him as Savior. But even in that, there will be some good news because the Bible teaches you can know him. You can know him today. You can trust him today. You can receive mercy and grace at the hands of God the Father and of Jesus Christ because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary for our sins. He promised us forgiveness. We just have to admit that we've sinned against him, that we can't help ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. Give up control. Commit your life to him. And then you have the promise that he'll take you through all of the storms. You have to take the step. You have to get out of the boat, so to speak. You have to walk on the water to go to Jesus. That means committing yourself completely to him. And one more thought for all of you. You don't need to wish that God will bless you. He already has. He gave you Jesus Christ. And that's the greatest blessing you can ever have. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we bow in your presence. You are so worthy to be worshipped. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ into the world to save us from our sins. We don't need to fear anything in this life. We don't need to worry. We don't need to overly concern ourselves that there's no way that we're going to get out of problems because you promised there is a way out. We're headed towards home. We have to keep that thought in our mind. We're always headed towards home. Lord, I pray that you would impress that upon Christians that are going through difficult times right now, things that they can't see the way out of. Just show them to implicitly trust you for all things. Then, Lord, I pray for someone here today who may not know or haven't understood you and your promise to save people from their sins. Perhaps even today is the first time they've ever heard it put this way. Lord, I just ask that you would speak to their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would convict their hearts, help them to understand they are sinners in need of the grace of God, that we are falling, we are sinking, that we are bound for destruction unless we commit ourselves wholly to you, put our trust in you to deliver us and to take us home to heaven. Lord, speak to some soul today. In Jesus' name we pray.